I believe not only that trauma is curable, but the healing process can be a catalyst for profound awakening. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep into somatic healing, how the hell we address the stored trauma within our bodies that resulted from our dysfunctional upbringings. So trait 10 of the laundry list For those of you who aren't familiar with the laundry list, it is the 14 common characteristics of an adult child. If you're wondering whether or not you're an adult child, go check that shit out. I will leave a link in the show notes. But trait 10 is we have stuffed our feelings from our traumatic childhoods and have lost the ability to feel or express our feelings because it hurts so much. Now, trait 10 really highlights the impact that the disease of family dysfunction has on our bodies. In the ACA Big Red book, it says, clinical research strongly suggests that childhood trauma or neglect are stored in the tissue of the children. The emotional or physical trauma does not go away without any effort to address the original cause. In some cases, the stored hurt creates a dissociative effect in the adult. The adult child has dissociated from his or her body. The person appears to function quite normally in society. However, the stored trauma is there, creating bodily ailments that can appear as depression, panic disorders, hyperactivity, or sloth. Because of this storing or disassociation, many adult children are truly baffled when a counselor suggests the person is holding down feelings or avoiding feelings. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so today I am chatting it up with Marina Yanai Triner. She is a somatic coach and she's going to be dropping some gems of wisdom for us all today. But first, a few things. So yesterday, Being Monday, September 13th, was my 13 years of sobriety. How did that happen? I'm not quite sure. And if you saw my Instagram video that I made yesterday, I can guarantee that the world has been a much better place since I put down the booze. And I don't know what made me think about this, but you know, the first guy I dated in the program, I think I called him Billy uh, in episode four or five. So Billy, I remember that he told all these people in the program that I wasn't really an alcoholic and that I just came to AA to find friends. And while yes, I definitely did not have any friends when I came into AA because of how much of a shit show I was when I drank and used drugs, I think that we can all agree that I am a drunk and an addict tried and true. If you've listened to episode four, I think that you would agree. I mean, drinking mouthwash, rubbing alcohol, taking lethal amounts of cough syrup and Benadryl, that sounds like somebody who clearly doesn't have substance abuse issues and is just looking for friends, if you ask me. But I'm getting off track. I am so grateful uh, for the past 13 years. It has truly been an amazing journey. 
Now, if you had told me on day one of sobriety that I would be in even more pain at nine years of sobriety, I'm not quite sure if I would have stayed the course, but thank God I was not privy to that information at that point in time, or you would not be listening to these words right now. Uh, I truly owe everything in my life to sobriety, and I think the biggest blessing truly has been friendship. Because as I said, I was somebody who was incapable of keeping a friend prior to getting sober. And I will say that the one thing that I have done consistently every single day of my sobriety without fail is that I have connected, I've communicated with somebody else that's in the program. So I really do think that that is the special sauce to success is to create relationships with other people in recovery uh, because that's definitely helped me to stay sober. And one more thing, I have an announcement. So as I've said, I am just truly amazed at the response that this podcast has received, the messages that I've received from y'all on how this podcast is impacting you is inspiring to say the least. And I'm truly humbled and grateful for each and every one of you. You know, I created this podcast to shine a light on a topic that I don't think is getting the attention it deserves. And I am now asking for your help in making this light shine brighter. So I am creating a Patreon. What the fuck is a Patreon, you ask? It is a membership platform that allows content creators like me to connect with their supporters and provide additional content. While I absolutely love creating this podcast and will continue to do so, it does take a lot of time and effort and resources to create this. I spend at least 20 to 30 hours every week working on this on top of my unfulfilling 40-hour-a-week job that pays the bills. And I spend about, I don't know, $120 or so each month on various subscriptions for hosting and editing softwares. So if this podcast has impacted you, If this is a cause that you support and that you believe in, I ask that you please help a girl out for as little as $5 a month. I think that most of you have $5 a month to spare. Um, I love how I threaten you all. Like I threaten you with with the reviews, give me the reviews, and now I'm trying to guilt you into giving me $5 a month. This is supposed to be a podcast about healing and Here I am trying to guilt you into helping me. But if you have $5 a month, please help a girl out. If you have the means to contribute more than $5 a month, I ask that you please help a girl out. Your contributions will not only help me to reach more listeners, but it also has the opportunity to impact generations to come as we break the cycle of family dysfunction And in addition to helping me grow the podcast as a patron, you will be granted access to exclusive content I don't share on the pod. Um, I'd like to do live virtual events, whether that's support groups or I'd like to do events with with guests. So maybe you would have an opportunity to to ask them questions. Um, I'd like to give you the opportunity to make episode topic suggestions. Um, There'll be a discussion board in there. So just an opportunity for us to create more of an adult child community. So yeah, I'll keep you posted. I am in the process of setting it up. So I hope to launch in the next week or so. 
Um, Patreon is an app that you can download on your phone or you can also access it online. It's super easy and I will provide you with all of the info that you need to know to do it. You know, I just want to say that this podcast has really shown me two things. The first being that this discussion about adult children of dysfunctional families and the disease of family dysfunction is even more needed than I initially thought. And I already thought that this was very, very needed. The other thing is that, you know, I wholeheartedly believe that this is part of my greater purpose, that I am meant to be a voice for this cause. So I just ask for your help in making my voice louder. I just want you all to know, too, that this podcast is as much yours as it is mine. And I really cannot thank you enough. Thank you for listening. Thank you for having a fucked up dysfunctional upbringing just like me. And thank you for being an adult child. And now for my conversation with Marina. My mind's telling me no. But my body, my body's telling me yeah. I don't want to hurt nobody, but there is something that I must confess. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce Marina Yanai Triner. She is a somatic coach, and she's going to tell us all how the hell we can heal our bodies of our trauma. <laughs> welcome. First of all, welcome. Happy to have you here. Thank you. Me too. I'm really excited. And it's, it's easy. You just heal your body from trauma. Yeah. <laughs> like that, right? Just get rid of it. <laughs> just like that. Yeah. I will say it's something that I um, need to explore more. It's something that I don't know a ton about, but I know that it's uh, kind of the next frontier for me for, for healing and um, something that I talk with my therapist a lot about. So I'm excited to get your wisdom. And I was, I was looking at this, um, at this Instagram post that you had, and it was kind of talking about your journey of healing. Let me see if I can find it. It said, uh, okay. So you said first I discovered meditation. I thought I was enlightened. Then I learned about limiting beliefs and I was stoked. I thought I now knew it all. Then I discovered inner child work. That's it. I'm saved breath work. Wow. My body and heart were forever changed. Then I found somatic healing. Ah, now I know I will be discovering and healing forever. What a journey, what a gift. You know, we all have our own pain stories. And I think that that also means that we have our own journeys of, of healing as well. We have to figure out what works for us. Yeah. You and I were talking about that. I remember when we first spoke because there's so many modalities and I think it's actually kind of a trauma response to be like, I found a thing and this is the thing that's going to help me and everybody else. Right. And then as you realize, like, and, and it's that rigidity, I was just talking to my therapist about the rigidity of trauma and how you don't see the options. You just see, this is the only thing. <laughs> and now it's cool because I feel like yeah, there's like tapping and there's somatic work and there's breath work and there's like all these cool things and EMDR and everybody finds their thing and everybody finds their person too. And then it changes. Like maybe next year you're over it, right? You're like, okay, I've outgrown this. Like I, I got what I needed next. So that it's pretty fun that way. You know, when we first chatted, I thought what was really interesting was you talking about how 
your unresolved trauma was coming to light through, through work. So do you want to talk a little bit about your, I guess, let's start with what was your understanding of trauma and when did that perhaps shift? My understanding was kind of an attraction and obsession and wanting to be constantly in that, you know, it was like, this is what defines me. And the victimhood, I think was the biggest thing, um, really defining myself as a victim and, and really enjoying that. And when did Um, that start for you? I mean, do you feel like you were born that way or was there a particular incident? I think it's a big part of the way that I was raised is Jews suffer, we're a minority and we're always oppressed and everybody hates us. And it's definitely a narrative you hear in Israel from Israel. So growing up, you know, it's, it's big. Um, It gets kind of entrenched in your mind and my family coming from Ukraine and being a minority in Ukraine, and then actually being a minority in Israel as a former Soviet union person, I actually dealt with a lot of racism, believe it or not. Um, because Israel is kind of a nation of immigrants. So like the previous generation will be mean to the next and like the, the previous immigrant generation. So, um, yeah, so it was the mentality, but the incident, I would say the the big trauma that I personally experienced was my first relationship, which was abusive. It was sexually and emotionally abusive. And I really kind of stuck to that as my definition, like, oh, here's my, like, here's my little secret weapon that I can tell anyone and get sympathy, you know, and I, and I would like use that a lot. Um, And how how old were you in that really, when that relationship began? I was 15 and my boyfriend, oh, actually I was 14 and my boyfriend was three years older than me. It was like my, my very first, you know, love relationship. It lasted for almost three years. Um, and was it, was it, um, crappy from the beginning? Was there like love bombing in the beginning? Yeah. So, you know, I was a kid, basically 14 years old, you're a child. And I had this fantasy that I'm going to meet this guy and he's going to love me and I'm going to love him. And it's going to be all rainbows and butterflies. And we had a little, we had a small community of Israelis, um, in the, you know, in San Diego where I live that we all hung out and he was kind of the star of the show. So <clears throat> that's how we met. Um, it was great in the beginning, of course, but it was overly great. Like it was like bizarre, you know, bizarrely great. And I know you're bringing this up because it's kind of a red flag that people need to notice when it's like the person's obsessed with you and they groom you and they tell you like, I chose you out of all the people and things like that. And my intuition definitely started speaking after about six months that some weird shit started happening, but I didn't do anything about it because I thought, well, you know, this is how it's supposed to be. And, you know, like him wanting to have sex, me not wanting to like, that's normal. And this is how men are. And I was also given these messages. What was your model? What was the model of your, were your parents married? Yes, my parents are happily married, but their sexuality was really repressed when they were when they met in Ukraine, they were young, they were in love. And it was like, no. Um, So they they're actually very open about sexuality. And they talk about it a lot and things like that. And I was always uncomfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And their message is like, sex is great and you should have it. And it's normal that he wants to have it. But I wasn't ready. You know, I was a, 
a kid and I wasn't ready. And I knew that. Um, and somehow then the manipulation began. It was like a whole, it was a very manipulative relationship in the sense of gaslighting and like just making me think that I'm delusional and that my needs don't matter and things like that. And also not being supported firstly, because I kind of left my community of friends and I was ashamed and I didn't want to talk to them, but also he would often tell me like, tell everyone that everything's fine and, and don't talk about it. Um, and my parents were just confused. Like this guy was in our house. He was like part of our family. Um, so they were really confused because I was depressed and I was angry and I would slam doors. And then I started to cut myself mm. and they were really just confused. And they were telling me like, you're just going through teenage troubles, you know, but obviously it was a lot more than that. Um, so it was, it was, it was a very, very hard time in my life. I felt very alone, very isolated, no one to talk to, um, until thank God he left, <laughs> he left, he moved back to Israel, back to the military. And that really gave me some space, but I was still didn't realize what happened. Like I still didn't realize this was abuse. This was wrong. Um, I just felt like it was, I was unhappy. Um, but then there was an angel who came into my life. Who's my ex-boyfriend who I will be forever grateful to who kind of like picked up on my intuition and said, something's weird. Like something's off. You need to figure this out. And, and then I got this awareness literally one night, middle of the night, I was talking to him. He was my friend at the time. And I got an awareness that I was raped mm. and I didn't realize that there was like a lot more to it. It was like a whole, you know, other abuse to it, but that realization kind of dawned on me. So then I called this guy and I asked him if that's true and he just said very calmly like yes that's true and I think I caught him off guard um yeah and that's basically the I would say the big trauma in my life but in addition to that also moving you know moving from Ukraine like now I understand that just having all the background about trauma mm -hmm. that those those moves when I was two years old I moved from Ukraine to Israel and then when I was 12 I moved to the U.S. Um, those were traumatizing as well. Yeah I think that that's so interesting to think that that could be trauma that that could lead to complex PTSD. You know, you think about little t trauma being more so emotional abuse or emotional neglect, but there's still kind of like an element of like foul play to that. But something as simple as just moving and relocating, it's, I think that that probably a lot of people would not consider that that could be trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I like to share it because my family told me when I was two, <laughs> I was on the plane yelling devils, devils. And they were so embarrassed. I was yelling at everyone on the plane. I think I was in so much distress. Like I just felt like I don't want to be here. Like, where are they taking me? I'm confused. And that's a really hard experience for a child, you know? And then when I was 12, it's just like your teenage years starting and getting uprooted is traumatic. So, and, you know, coming to a country where everything's different, you're different. You don't have any friends. You don't know anyone. 
and my parents were super stressed. Like they were stressed about money, stressed about life. And so for sure that affected me. And I'll take it one more layer, which I don't know if you talk about this, but there's also the um, ancestral trauma yeah. piece. Yeah. which now I'm like really working through and it's made a huge difference in my life. My grandma was born in the Holocaust. She was born in a labor camp. And when she was two years old, her mom died like a day after liberation, she died of disease. And it's so crazy. Like I have chills when I tell you that. So I know it affects me so much. So I, um, oh yeah, you interviewed Mark Wallen. I'm like, of course you talk about this. So his book really helped me work through a lot of actually business related things like money related. Cause my grandma was always very, very intense about money and terrified about money and feeling like, oh my God, I don't have enough. Like something's going to happen. And I understand that's not my story. That's her story completely. So that was was super cool. I took her for a walk and I was talking to her and her language. It was just so clear. I was like, this is literally my language about money and also being scared to be alone. Like all the words she was saying were like a perfect match. So that was really fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Mark talks about that, that core language. That mm-hmm. we um, so, so then who took care of her? Was there other family? that? Yeah, her dad survived and he remarried and her like her stepmom burned all of her mom's photos, which is really sad. And when she was 13, she was sent away with a little bit of money to just and you know, you're 13 like that is insane. She was sent and it's so funny. So check this out. So she um, got into the hospital really, really sick because she spent all the money on clothes and not on food. And she was basically starving. And the funny thing is that I over overspend on food all the time. And it's like compulsive. Like, I feel like I can't stop. Like I have to buy food and I have to have cans and I have to have, you know, all this extra stuff because like, what if something happens when she was like telling me the story again, which I grew up hearing of her being in the hospital and thinking she's going to die. And she was alone. No one came and she was writing these goodbye letters and stuff. You know, she was a kid and it happened because she spent all her money on clothes, which when I buy clothes, I have massive anxiety. Like I, I hate clothes shopping. It just, it's so crazy. Like it all made sense. I was like, this is why I do all these things. That is fucking crazy. (laughs) So then when you had this awareness of that, you were in fact raped, did you seek treatment at that point in time? Yes. So when I was, so my parents were like, you're not going to therapy. They didn't at that point, they didn't know why I wanted to go to therapy. You must have been like 18 at this point. Yeah. Like 17. I would tell my parents constantly, I want to go to therapy. And they're like, you're fine. (laughs) I was like, no, I'm telling you something's wrong, but they just didn't put, you know, they didn't understand. So when I was 18, I went to college and there was free therapy, which Mm -hmm. is amazing. So I went. um, So that was really, really great. And the first thing the therapist told me was, this is going to be about connecting to your intuition again, which like, it's, that's what I do right now with my clients. So it's just so cool. And I'll never forget that she said that. 
then when was your um, when was your entry into the somatic world? First of all, let's explain what the hell that even means. Yeah. <laughs> so somatic means of the body in the body. And it's just work on the nervous system level. So it's not like going back to the trauma and talking about the details and what happened and all this stuff. It's more looking at the sensations, the felt sense. So things like constriction, expansion, hot, cold, tingling, all these different sensations that we have in our body. Because what happens in trauma, I like to give a little bit of background. What happens in trauma is um, you freeze, right? So we, the options that we have in a given situation is to run away or fight. And if we are in a situation that feels like I can't do either one, like I just don't feel like I, I can in this situation, my most intelligent thing is to freeze. And this is something that, that actually happened to me personally um, when I was raped for the first time, because, and it's actually very intelligent. So people tend to judge themselves. Like I didn't do anything. I didn't fight. I didn't say no enough times. And it's very common in society right now to, to do that. Um, but in reality, it's very intelligent because it's a numbing thing. Like we numb our entire body. And so we don't feel as much pain. Mm -hmm. So it's a very smart coping mechanism for that moment. The problem is we then carry it over and do it all the time. And we kind of, we sever that connection with our body. Our body is numb and it can show up in a lot of different ways. Like not for me, just a simple example. I, I wouldn't know when I was hungry or full. I had no idea. Hmm. Um, I didn't know what I wanted in life. I kept getting everyone's advice. Like everyone's going to help me. I'm going to ask a hundred people. I just... I couldn't feel my body. I literally, and I had that awareness that like, how come I only feel my head? <laughs> like what is going on? So I would go from therapist to therapist and talk about it. But the problem is that trauma is in your body, not just your mind. It is, of course, it, it shapes our beliefs and the way we see the world. And that's part of it but it's also in our bodies and that energy. So when you think of like the fight or flight, that's like super intense energy, right? Like it's like, it's a lot of energy that gets built up. And when we freeze, it's like imagining all that energy being frozen and just being stuck in our body. And then over years and years of not releasing it, it's pretty crazy what starts to happen with physical illnesses and just everything that's going on with our bodies. I had and still am working through a million digestive issues. So, and PMS, I had like super severe PMS. I would faint and throw up. And I think that's very common. And a lot of women don't realize it's actually trauma related. Mm. So then going to therapy, it was great to talk about it. But I always felt like there was a missing piece because of the disconnect to my body. And it just, it always felt like I was born with really strong intuition. Like I'm a very intuitive person, but I just like couldn't connect to it. Like something wasn't working. And it's also, of course, like when you're traumatized, you distrust very often your intuition when, you know, like you were sharing in your story that there were red flags, right? And you're like, no, it's okay. That's really not listening to our body. And then our body's like, 
okay, I'm not going to tell you anymore then because you're not listening. (laughs) Exactly. And so um, in somatic experiencing, what we do is we actually connect to that felt, to that energy. And it can be really intense. And that's why it's really important to work with someone because it's like, oh, this energy comes and you're like, whoa, like, I don't know what to do with this. And all these emotions, like imagine there was like a huge, um, I love visuals. So like a huge hole in the ground filled with all this energy. And on top, there was a rock, like a very heavy rock for many, many years. And then you start to like move that rock and some stuff like starts to spill out. You don't want to move that rock all at once. That would be nuts. So you want to move it a little bit every time. And the biggest thing that we do is teach our brain because our brain is scared. It's like, oh my God, this is a threat, right? It's like I'm experiencing the trauma again right now. That's what it feels like in the moment. So you're teaching your brain, actually, no, you're safe. Now you're safe and you can handle this energy. So it's very, very slow. And over time, you start to release, release, release. And you build capacity in your nervous system to be with all that energy and all the emotion, the fear, the anger, the sadness, the frustration, everything. And that's basically the process. So is trauma only stored in the body as a result of that freeze response? Or can it also happen when we fight and flight? It might, from what I know, from my understanding. So Peter Levine shares this really great story that I would love to share. Please. That um, there were these boys and girls, I think, that were abducted and they were, like, it's a true story. They were put underground in something and they they all had different ways of dealing with it in the moment. And then they actually checked which of them was left with PTSD. And it's fascinating because there was only one boy that actually tried to get out and he was physically mobilized. Like he was moving, he was like digging, just doing different things. And he literally had no PTSD symptoms. Mm. So all the other kids were immobilized, meaning they were just like sitting there, frozen, scared, you know, just numb in freeze mode. And they all did have PTSD. So I'm sure it's not black and white and there's, you know, varying degrees, but there's a big effect to it. Yeah. I was thinking about it within my own childhood. Um, cause it's, it's about, you know, not processing our emotions or not feeling our emotions fully. I mean, for me, it was the cycle of intense anger or anxiety, but then, um, but then, or then feelings of numbness. Right. And so that was kind of what was modeled to me in my home was I would sit on the stairs and I would listen to my parents argue, and then I would get an adrenaline rush from listening to them. So I don't know if that qualifies as freeze. It, yeah, it, it, it does. Like, cause I guess freeze doesn't necessarily mean that you numb out. Can it also mean a rush of adrenaline or is it just that you're choosing not to take action? So the, yes, it's choosing not to take action. So the rush of adrenaline is your body wanting to do something, run away, break them up, you know, break up their fight, right? Do something. But then as a child, you probably feel like there's nothing I can do. And then 
you know, all that energy, that rush of adrenaline that you're describing just gets shut down. You shut it down. And that's where the freeze happens. The two feelings that really were um, modeled to me as a child were either anger or numbness. Um, and so for me, I know that there's a lot of sadness and grief that still, you know, it, it's definitely started to come up more, but that was not, that was not ever expressed to me, the sadness. And I feel like honestly, the sadness is the hardest part because it's like underneath it all, there's like, you know, the sadness and the grief and it's so intimidating at first. You're like, I can't sit with this. Like this is going to last forever. So you're teaching your body and your brain. It's not, you know, and I think I told you, I can't remember if it was you, but that I cried in front of my therapist and I was like, so yeah, I was so happy about it because I never felt safe before to, to do that. So yeah, it's, because the thing is that in life, we can't fully be alive and experience life if we can't sit with all emotions. We can't just choose. We can't just be like, okay, well, I'll just be happy and maybe a little bit angry, but nothing else. It has to be all of it. And that's part of the human experience. And if you think of animals, how they move from different states, like they have flow, like they can move from being agitated to like, being chill, you know, but they have flow fluidity, there's no rigidity there. And when, and actually, Peter Levine developed this whole thing through animals. So I really like to use those examples. When I remember I saw a mouse, and I didn't realize it was a mouse, I was hiking, and I started screaming. And then I saw the mouse shake, Mm. shaking, 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 and then just left. And that is, that is, exactly the thing like the mouse is not gonna have ptsd for my screen because the mouse shook it off the mouse took the time to release that energy of the fear that i put into it right and so we don't do that we just go i need to do something i can't shut down Mm. so all that energy gets stored up and I think it it will probably be huge for you when you work through. And it's really cool that you're even aware of it because I feel like most people, like I wasn't at all. I had no idea. (laughs) Um, I just, all I knew was I need a therapist in the body. It was like a mantra. I was like, I need a therapist in the body. And I had no idea if it existed or not, but it was like an intuition that I had because I started to do some work in the coaching world that was in the body. And it was very, very helpful. And I could tell. Um, And then I got a referral, referral. And then someone said, somatic experiencing. And I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And that's how I found my therapist. Mm. Yeah. One thing I've learned about myself or noticed about myself in the past couple of years is that the few times that I've cried, like really cried, have been... um, where I felt very unjustly personally attacked. I can handle criticism. Like I gladly welcome it. I don't have thin skin, but yeah, those are like the two times that I can think of in the past several years where I really cried and cried and cried was when I felt very unfairly personally attacked. For me, it's when I get physically hurt. The first time I ever cried in front of my 
any therapist and my current therapist is when we were doing anger release, which in somatic work, you do everything super slow. So sometimes you'll get the instructions. Maybe people have heard like punch a pillow or whatever. And that stuff is great. But the reason we do it slow, I was actually trying to punch a pillow really, really slow is because you want to connect with your body as you do it. Mm -hmm. So if you just go fast it really mirrors the trauma. If you think about it, trauma is like so fast and disconnected, but you want to connect with your chest, your stomach, your throat, and really like sense that energy coming out and, and releasing. So I was doing that. And then I missed the pillow and I was bleeding like crazy. <laughs> and I just like, she was like, Oh my God, like I still have a scar. She was like, go, you know, go get some ice. And as I go get ice, I'm like starting to ball. And I was like, okay, Marina, you have a choice. This is your moment. You can go back to that Zoom or you can just cry by yourself. I was like, I'm going to go back. And I felt crazy. I was like, oh my God, I feel like you need to put me in a mental hospital. I can't cry in front of you. But the um, injury kind of let me cry because as a kid, it was very legit to cry over physical injuries, you know? So So are you telling us that we should all hurt ourselves right now? (laughs) Yes. My advice, (laughs) self-harm. My advice is go bang your fist against the wall and bleed. No, I'm just Really slowly. (laughs) Yes. Really hard and slow. So I wanted to talk about the repetition, like the compulsion of what related to unresolved trauma. So that is kind of one of the most more curious symptoms of unresolved trauma is like our ability to, to seek situations that model or recreate those Mm -hmm. those situations. How does that relate to the trauma being stored in our body? Like what is the connection there? Yeah, I love that question. I was actually thinking of um, writing a post about it. So it's, uh, you know, when you have that energy, you want to release it. You're like, it's not conscious what I'm saying. Obviously it's it's very subconscious, but your body's like, I need to get rid of this. This is blocking my life. So unconsciously you're trying to find a situation that's going to repeat in a new way. Like that's going to mirror what happened to you, but be different so that then you can finally release that energy. You can finally hit someone or shoot. And Peter Levine has brilliant examples of people that go and do, you know, armed robberies and all these things. And that's why, that's why you thought of it probably. And I'm, and that's why I'm, I'm personally super fascinated with prison. Like I I want, yeah, it's just fascinating. I'm like dying to go do work in prisons Um, because I fully believe that every single person there is traumatized and they're just trying to release the trauma in different ways. Mm. And so that's, that's what we do. We try to go into the same situation and fight. Um, And actually even thinking about my own experience, I ended up going to the police like seven, six, seven years ago. Um, and my thing was like, I have to meet this guy and I have to tell him everything I think. And it was really, really hard, but I did. I met him there and I did. You have to meet what guy? The, the person, my first boyfriend. Oh, was he working there? 
No, he was. So I filed the complaint. Okay. Yes. And I I knew it wasn't going to go, you know, very far in the system, but I wanted to have a face off with him so that I could tell him everything. And that moment of being like, now it's your time to listen. And I'm going to tell you everything I think that was like a, a moment of releasing energy for me, for sure. Like when I think back on it, how good it felt and how like when I walked away, I wasn't connected to my body, though. That's the thing. So that's what ends up happening is that people think they're going to release the energy, but they're not actually connected to their body. So they're not connected to that release. And so nothing, nothing changes long-term, but I remember I was on a high, like afterwards, I was literally on a high after being able to just say all these things. And I almost, I felt like I was very aggressive. Like I, I felt like I just like threw it on him and then I left and it was really like a release. Hmm. But then, I mean, was that just kind of putting a bandaid on a wound? I think it was the thing that I needed at that time. And it was, it was helpful. And in a sense, for sure, it did something for me. It kind of reminded me that I can be mobilized and I have some power and I can do some things, but I still lived with very severe PTSD, um, perhaps a little bit less but it was still there, the immobility, needing to spend days in bed, um, nightmare, just all the things, you know, like especially body sensations that were just like unbearable. Um, so, yeah, it was half a bandaid. <laughs> how long was it from when you had the realization that that's what had happened? You called him. He was over in Israel. And then mm-hmm. how many years was that until you were in the police station with him? Uh, about 10, I would say. 10 years. Wow. And do you feel comfortable sharing a little bit about what you said and what his response was? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was actually working for the rape crisis centers and my kind of deadline was coming up for, to go to court. Um, which, which my friend who was working with me was like, this is why I like the deadline. Like so many women don't, you know, think that it's not okay, but it pushes you to do something. So in that sense, it's, it's a good thing. Um, so I ended up going and I got so much support, like in my work, everybody sat down with me for like hours to be like, what is your intention? You know, you're not going to get justice. It doesn't work this way. So that was really, really helpful. I was there for three hours in the initial like report and I had my friend with me in the room and she was actually the one that was like, why do you call this rape? This is abuse. Like it's, you were here for three hours talking like nonstop. I had so much to say. It was insane of like all the little things that he's done. And they brought a female investigator just for me, which I'm really grateful for. It was like an all male police station And then they were basically like, okay, so now you have the option to have a face off, which is a thing in Israel. A lot of women don't know that it's an option. They think it's a must. This is in Israel that you did this. Yes. And I was like, great, this is what what I want. So yes, I want the face off. But then they are like, okay, we'll call you. And you just like have no idea. That was like hell. That was the worst month probably of my whole life. I was in total shutdown and freeze. Like I could barely get out of bed. I could barely eat, 
function. It was horrible. Just waiting for that call. And then after a month, they called and they're like, come in tomorrow. So it's all, it's great. You know, they tell you a day before and you're so prepared. Um, and I, I remember just like walking to the police station and like, oh my God, I can't do this. And my partner came with me. He's super supportive and his mom too. Um, and then it was like a tiny room with three male investigators and the two of us. And his response was like, why are you doing this to me? I don't know what you want. Like very kind of like victim thinking, blaming, <laughs> blaming the victim, victim, blaming the victim, which now I understand that. I mean, I have no doubt that he's a victim too of some trauma in his life. Clearly, if he was acting that way at such a young age, I mean, he learned it from somewhere. Exactly. And trying to release his energy onto something else, you know, and not getting the support that he needed. So I personally don't have any anger towards him anymore. Um, not that I'm saying that's what you should do. It's just my experience. But um, yeah, it was like him almost crying and then I was like okay I don't want to hear you I'm gonna talk <laughs> and it was so funny because I was like in the waiting room before and there was like some random investigator and I was freaking out like on the verge of death I felt like I was dying and this investigator like my partner told me later that this investigator walked by the room that he could hear me so he told my partner like don't worry she's kicking ass because <laughs> I was just like I was like a badass it's like all this energy just came and I just like said my things um it was amazing it was very empowering I felt like it was a really good experience for me yeah, I think in that in that situation and in so many situations like this where it's um like a difficult conversation, it's being so and what you were saying about discussing with people before the fact about being so clear about what your um your intentions are, right? Because we have to make sure that regardless, like going into this situation, we can't have the expectations that it's somehow we're going to change somebody or we're going to get them to say that they're sorry or to acknowledge anything and just making sure that it's like, regardless of how the other person may or may not react or respond that we're, that we still wanted to do this, you know, for ourselves and just having no expectations tied to the other person at all. And, and I think about that a lot, like difficult conversations with family. Okay. Am I just saying this for me? Or am I saying this to try to control a situation in some way? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Try to change them. Try to get a response. Yeah. So I was very lucky that I basically got coached by all these amazing women who were like grilling me. Like, why are you doing this? You know, what's your goal? It was, it was uh, so helpful. I'll never forget it. Yeah. And also like trying to, you know, making sure that we come in there with a clear message and staying on that message. Yeah. I will say something really interesting though, that's been coming up for me in the last couple of months studying attachment theory, mm -hmm. um, that after all those experiences, I was like, okay, so I control me and that's all there is and no one can affect me and I'm independent. And I think that's also kind of a trauma response where we say it's, it's just me and me, you know, like no one can affect me. Like I'm mm -hmm. cold as ice and now understanding how much actually, how dependent I am on my partner, not in a codependent way, but I'm freaking dependent on my partner and he's dependent on me. 
Um, that's just life. And it's part mm-hmm. of our nervous systems when we get together with someone and we've been together for 10 years. You, you, you form something together and it's like in our deep, deep, deep survival kind of strategies, this is how we're built. We're built to not be alone in the world. We're built to be in like tribes and communities and all these things. So I just wanted to share that because it was a very big aha moment for me to be like, you depend on this man. Yeah. <laughs> like you're, you know, he affects you and that's normal. There's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Back to the whole repetition um, symptom. Mm-hmm. We talk about how it's our body seeking um, energy release. Where does, you know, cause I think for me and finding myself in very similar, emotionally unavailable, toxic relationships, a lot of that too has to do with the limiting beliefs that we hold about ourselves and then finding relationships that reconfirm that, you know, that mm-hmm. mirror that, and like just further ingrain that in ourselves. So where does that come into play for you as far as repetition when it comes to trauma? I mean, we obviously have like the stored body stored energy in our body, but the, the other part of it too, is these limiting faulty beliefs that we hold about ourselves. Absolutely. And it's both, it's all connected, you know? Um, so it's really funny to kind of realize like all my closest people are basically my mom and my mom and I are super close and we have a really good relationship, but I never allowed myself to sort of feel anger towards her because Mm -hmm. we're so close. It was always like, she's my best friend. She's perfect. You know? Um, and there were all these little things that started happening with all my closest friends and my partner, all people who are seriously so much like my mom. And I wouldn't let myself express my needs with them because it's like not okay. And I would just start to convince myself why actually my needs are wrong. You know, <laughs> like I need to be more considerate and I need to learn and all this stuff. And then I just kind of went through a process of feeling anger towards my mom and for human beings it's very hard to like contain duality you know like I love my mom but I can also be angry with my mom and I also don't even have to tell her about it I can just like sit there and feel angry about different things that she's done and different needs that she didn't meet because she's human she's not perfect she can't meet my every need um and also not have the story like this is this is the important part is like when we feel these feelings we don't need to get into the story we don't need to be like oh yes yes i'm mad at my mom this is what that doesn't matter it's just feeling the anger in your body and not getting into all the thoughts about it and that was really powerful because i feel like now i'm finally starting to really connect with my needs and be like this is my need no story. Like, this is what I need in this moment. And maybe, you know, in a year, I'm going to have different needs and I'm going to work through something that has caused this trauma driven need that I have right now. But this is what it is right now. So, um, yeah, that's been very funny. And I remember actually telling my mom, like, mom, you know, they say we married the person that is most like the parent that we have issues with. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, but your partner is nothing like your dad. And I was like, I know. <laughs> and she's like, what? It's okay. Don't worry about it. 
it, this was a nice segue because um, I wanted to ask you about that next about, you know, cause it talks about in healing trauma as well. It talks about how we don't have to remember like, everything consciously in order to heal from that. And so that is something that is extremely common for adult children is that many of them disassociated and they don't have, you know, memories from significant periods of their childhood. And so can you talk about why that doesn't matter? Yeah. It's that piece of felt sense, you know, your body's going to remember. So something super fascinating, I like to give examples is I'm doing this exercise with my partner where he, it's like around safe touch. So he will just literally super gently, like touch me on my back, you know, like kind of non-sexual related areas. And I remember one day I literally was like, am I in high school right now? I literally feel like I'm in high school, like my whole internal experience. And it wasn't cognitive. It wasn't like, I remember when this person touched me like this. It was just all body memories that were coming back. But it was, you know, that experience, like if you smell something and all of a sudden your entire body is like in a different dimension, like you're no longer in this present moment. And it's not a dissociative thing. It's more like your, you, you know, your smell triggers like a full body experience. You're very much present. You're just like, whoa, like I just had this full body memory. And that's because all these things are stored in our bodies. So we don't have to, and that's the beautiful thing about somatic experiencing. You don't have to have the specific memory. You can work to release that energy and get more free in your life just through the energy, just through the felt sense. It doesn't have to be by rehashing what happened, um, which I think is so cool because, you know, none of us really remember every single detail and maybe we remember things differently than how they happened. But, and I work with a lot of clients actually who don't remember. Um, they, they'll be like, I, I'm blank, right? But it's like, what's happening in your body right now? Oh, my chest is really tight. Yeah, I feel like my left side is just like constricted, like I can't move, you know, so it'll be through that it won't be through the the story. And then it's just a matter of being present and allowing the, the feelings, the physical sensations to be there. So my favorite tool in somatic experiencing is called pendulation. And if you think of a pendulum, like swinging from side to side, right, and eventually kind of settling in the middle, just settling. And we say the nervous system settles, it'll go from one extreme to the next until it settles. So what we do is we focus on that constriction. And we stay with that we stay present, as long as it's not overwhelming, because if it's really overwhelming, we'll go back to freeze. So we don't go to that point. And I always check, are you present? Are you in your body? Are you still here with me? Okay, let's stay with it a little bit more. And that's increasing our capacity, our nervous system capacity to be with the sensation. And then we'll move to something pleasant. So it could be uh, openness somewhere else in your body. For me, for some reason, it's usually my hands and my feet. I feel like really good, open. There's no constriction. Um, it can also be a memory can be, you know, just anything pleasant, like an image of a lake or somewhere in nature, or even looking around the room and finding something pleasant and then connecting to your felt sense around that. And then going back and forth until you feel this settling in your whole entire body, your nervous system settles. Mm -hmm. 
Can you share just about your own personal experience? What has been like a pivotal transformation or uh, a benefit that you've received from your own somatic healing or example of, of how this has worked or how it's transformed your life? Yeah, this is what I know we, we didn't end up super touching on it, but this is where uh, my work stuff and my relationship. So my biggest, my two biggest triggers is money and sex. You know, like most people, I feel like it's, it's those topics you don't want to talk about um, for reasons that we already probably talked about. Mm-hmm. So with sex, I wouldn't say that I'm in a place where I want to be. I still have a lot of work to do, but I feel way more present. I feel able to say no and like just say, no, this is not what my body wants right now. And the presence is, so I used to literally numb out just every, like, I'm not here anymore. I'm out (laughs) and I don't do that anymore. So that's very exciting. And I also am super aware of myself. So if I'm doing something that's related to sexuality or my body or anything, and I start to feel overwhelmed in the past, I would override it and just be like, it's okay. You can push through, you know, now it's like, nope, I'm good. All right. I'm going to take a break. I'm taking a break. So that awareness is huge. Like I haven't hit overwhelm in a very long time because I know how to be like, right now I need a walk and quiet or, or, you know, whatever it is. And I just don't push myself like I used to, which was a very trauma driven thing. And with work, I coach people and I love doing it, but the business side of things, the having a business side of things was literally like up, down, up, down, up, down. And if your nervous system is already very overloaded, which it is for people who have trauma, Every little thing that you add is like, no way. Like you just go into shutdown. So the coolest thing has been expanding my capacity in my nervous system. It's not in the story. It's not in the limiting beliefs. It's really like expanding my ability to be with that up and down. And now I can handle a lot. Like, for example, calls with people about coaching were so overwhelming to me. They would throw me into freeze and I don't have that anymore. You know, I'm fully present. I'm talking to people. Also connected to my intuition. Like in the past, I would be like, I don't know if I want to work with this person. I'm numb. Like I feel nothing. Now I'm like, this person excites me. This person I think is not the best fit. Like it's really, really cool. So those have been huge. And adding on top of that, um, I would get very triggered with my partner. You know, the people that we love the most, they are the most triggering. So of course he still triggers me, but I'm much more able to be present and not just like explode and just be an asshole. Um, and he, he's also doing somatic work, which is really cool. So both of us have been able to um, talk calmly. And I feel like there's so much shame around this. Like you shouldn't yell at your partner, but it's like, if you have all this trauma, that's a normal thing you do. (laughs) Like you just want to unleash that shit on someone. And so doing this work, I'm, I'm able to not. So it's very, very cool. Okay. So what about for somebody who's listening, who maybe they know that they came from a dysfunctional family, but let's say they don't think that they have any stored trauma, unresolved trauma in the body. What are some subtle signs that somebody might, that they might not associate with it being some sort of a trauma response? 
Yeah. And I would say we all have. We all have some kind of trauma. It doesn't have to be something extreme. Um, so trouble making decisions, like having to ask all these different people and just not being sure of what you want in your life chronically, not like in one situation, having to numb out a lot and addictions. So I'm not just talking about alcoholism and drug use and things like that. I'm talking about scrolling. I'm talking about watching TV for hours every night, shopping, um, things like that. And you do that for a reason. You do that to numb something. Um, Overthinking. That's a very big one. Just feeling not fully engaged with your life. So feeling chronically dissatisfied. I would say that one of the biggest gifts of somatic experiencing for me has been to bring back my aliveness in the world. Like I'm just excited. I don't have, I don't need like a huge thing to be excited. So those are some of the things. And I have several posts on the symptoms and how you know, and how you know that you're numbing out and what it feels like and things like that. But I would say those are some major ones that come to mind. Yeah. You have some really great content on your Instagram. So go check her shit out. It's really good. Thank you. Um, so do you want to talk about the coaching services that you provide ideal candidate or client or the type of people that you feel that you can really be of service to? Yeah. Uh, people who really, you know, people pleasing, I forgot to mention that. Hello. As a (laughs) trauma response, most, okay. All my clients experience you know, some degree of people pleasing. So that's a very common thing because I am a recovering people pleaser that I can really support people with and really resonates with me. Um, So it's like when you do things that you don't really want to do, when you feel like I should, but I feel resentful afterwards when you say no, yes, and you mean no, when you don't, when you're not in touch with your needs, Um, You're not actually fulfilling your needs. If you feel shut down, if you feel stuck, like I'm stuck in this career, but I can't get out. One of the things is actually feeling like you have no options. No, but I have to do this. This is the only thing that I can do. Um, That's trauma response. So feeling stuck, feeling like you don't have options, feeling shut down and not alive and super present in your life feeling like you're minimizing yourself, making yourself small and really not fully living and inhabiting your body, Mm -hmm. um, all these things. And, you know, recently I'm realizing that one of my favorite things is trauma informed personal growth because Mm -hmm. personal growth can have so much bullshit of like, just think, and it will happen. And that does, does not work for a lot of us. It works for some people, but it doesn't work for probably not anyone listening to this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that was so frustrating to me. It was so invalidating. Like there's something wrong with me because it's not working what they say, these motivational videos. So I'm a huge fan of personal growth and I have grown as a human like immensely, but the biggest way I've done it is through being trauma-informed and understanding the impact of trauma on my life so that I can actually use trauma to grow rather than talk shit about myself. <laughs> so that's, I love that work. Someone who's like wanting to grow, but feeling like I have no idea how to do this, feeling stuck. That's who I love supporting. Well, now that you did say it, I feel like we need to dive into this just a little bit, but why is people pleasing a trauma response? Oh, yes. Um, it's a survival mechanism because 
we do it to cope. You know, no human actually wants to constantly fulfill the needs of somebody else and not themselves. Mm. <laughs> that's not normal, right? I mean, normal is a bad word, but like, you know what I mean? That's not human nature. Like we as humans are supposed to be connected to ourselves, to our needs. And of course we make compromises and we're like, I want this, this person wants this and I'm okay with this compromise. But people pleasing is when you do the thing and you're not okay with it. And then you're super resentful. And that traces back to childhood. It's something that you did as a child to be loved, to get attention. And as far as when you were a baby, if your parents were not super attuned to you, meaning like our parents actually mirror back our emotions. So if we're like sad, there, you know, they show us, oh, this is what sadness is. Good. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like healthy to feel sad. And this is what happiness is. But when our parents are not attuned with themselves, they're not attuned with us. They don't have space for our feelings. Um, and, you know, even if our parents left, like my mom left for two weeks when I was little to finish her exams. And that really, really affected me. And I believe that's actually my source of people pleasing, interestingly. So I constantly felt like I got to convince her. I got to convince her that I'm worth loving, even though she obviously doesn't think that. But that goes on in my mind. So Gabor Mate, I love how he explains this as attachment versus authenticity, that those are two needs that we have. We have the need to attach to other human beings. And when we're babies, we need our parents, like our caregivers, like we would die otherwise. So that is a greater survival need than authenticity, being authentic to ourselves. Because if we see that our parents are not liking us being angry, the message is like, okay, I'm going to do what you like because I need to survive. Mm -hmm. And survival is not always the path to happiness. <laughs> like evolutionary survival is simply for protection, you know, but it's not, it's not a way to make us happy. So we're not going to grow up as very happy adults when we're constantly searching for what people want and giving them that in order to survive day to day. Mm. Well, that was great. A lot of people pleasers out there listening. Um, well, yes. great. Where can people find you? Uh, my website is marinayt.com and then my Instagram, marina.y.t. Great. Well, I will include all of that shit. And this has been very enlightening. And thank you so much for your time and for your honesty and your wisdom. Thank you. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. If you didn't, that's your problem. Thank you, Marina. That was wonderful. Please check out the show notes for ways to contact her. You can also find links to my social media on there. So now I want to share with you another um, audio message I received. This is very powerful. If, you know, if you're not sitting down, I think you might want to sit down for this. Kiki, wow, that was truly amazing. Um, thank you for your bravery and, and sharing your heart with us right then and there. I'm surprised Kiki hasn't made a, an appearance yet on the pod. What the hell is wrong with me? So next week, I 
have a great interview for you. I, so I did it yesterday. So it's with this guy. His name is William C. Moyers. He is head of external affairs and communications at Hazelden Betty Ford. He is the son of Bill Moyers, who was a, a very famous, or he still is alive, is a very famous journalist. Um, and he was a White House press secretary for for Johnson. William has a memoir called Broken, if you want to go check it out. Um, I have some really exciting interviews coming up for you guys. So, oh, and forgive me, give me a fucking five-star rating on Apple Podcasts if you haven't. Um, Okay, well, I will see you all next week. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I am super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie, I promise. Let it all go.